your reality is spiritual. His truth is his truth. And if we can align with God's reality, we will finally be living by reality. You know, we've been teaching our way through the feasts. For those of you this have been with us for the last months, and I've been threatening that we are actually going to go on and preach the Feast of Pentecost. <laughs> okay, quick review. So two weeks ago, I spent considerable time telling you we were going to begin looking at reality-defining truths. In other words, principles throughout the entire Scripture that should be defining our reality should be life-changing in the sense that if you actually view reality according to these truths that go from Genesis to Revelation, and this is actually the way that you think because it's God's truth, it's life-changing. It actually brings you into the destiny that you have in Jesus Christ. He's got plans for you that he's working out in your life, and he is going to do it. So we're going to do a little bit of that this morning. Now, just to continue and review, dominion is a legal contract. If man was to have any dominion at all for anything, it would be given by God. We would have that because God would give man dominion. Man was given dominion by God, and then when man fell, Satan became our spiritual director. Now, something to recognize is that man did not lose dominion. God did not take away dominion. We lost the ability to have dominion rightly. We lost the ability to have the will of the throne room of God be done on earth because we would have dominion rightly. That's why Jesus had to come. You see, God had given man dominion in the earth. That's why Jesus had to come as a man and fulfill the law because it would require one with legal dominion in the earth to reestablish the kingdom that was lost to reestablish that the will of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven, would need to be reestablished by a man. And that's exactly why God never intended for his Holy Spirit, for his power, for his glory, to remain in a stone temple or remain in a box on the other side of the curtain. It was always his intention to put that glory back in man so that we would rule with dominion rightly. And we all have our own part. You have a share in that inheritance. You have a destiny in Jesus Christ where he means for you to have that dominion. Is there anything cooler that we could talk about? Okay, so as so we're going to go into the Pentecost, the Pentecost, in the year that Jesus fulfilled it, the same year that he laid his life down, died, rose from the dead, we're going to look at that Pentecost. Before we do that, we're going to go back to the first Pentecost just briefly, I promise. So go with me to Exodus chapter 32 and verse 25. So here's the context. And there's a lot of this part of the narrative that we're not going to look at this week. We looked at two weeks ago. But this is the first Pentecost. This is the first time that the glory of God comes down on the mountain. The fire of God comes down and God accomplishes his Pentecost purpose on the mountain, which you'll remember I said that with Pentecost, God is always accomplishing something with the law. It's always an accomplishment with the law. In this case, he gave the law. He gave Moses the stone tablets. 
So the power of God comes down on the mountain. You'll remember we talked about that a barrier was established. There is a barrier between us and Pentecost. This is true today as it was then. And that is, remember, that is for his mercy. That is because he is good. He does not remove that barrier until we're ready. We cannot survive the glory of God until it's God's timing. And he says you're ready. And he's the one who does it. Removes that barrier. So, our context here is Moses accomplishes this, but God accomplishes this purpose. And Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets, with the law. And what he discovers is that the people got impatient. They thought that he must have been, he must not have survived God's glory up there. So they move on and they go, well, what are we going to do? We're going to need a God to go before us as we cross the Jordan, go into the promised land. So they decide to make the golden calf, even before Moses can get back. And this is what he discovers. And so starting in verse 25, we're going to see how Moses and God handle what's discovered that they've started this idolatry. In verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So look what they did. First of all, let's just stop there for a moment. They they contrived God, did they not? I know this is review. You've all heard this before, but they made a golden calf. They said, we'll make our own God. If it doesn't work out just as quick as I need it to and the way I want it to, we'll just make our own God. We'll contrive God. And they contrived the power of God. One thing we looked at two weeks ago was they said, they literally said, this will be our God because we're going to need a God to go before us when we cross the Jordan to go conquer the promised land that he's promised. That's saying they understand that they're going to need the power of God and so they're going to contrive it. They'll make a calf and they'll say, this will go before us. This will do it for us. And what happens? It makes them a laughing stock to their enemies. So in verse 26 it goes on, and speaking of Moses it says, So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Now notice, in the midst of all this, he says, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And who comes? Yeah, the priests. (laughs) The priests are the ones who come. Now you remember, we've been teaching about this. And in verse 27, it says, Then he said to them, Now listen. This is the crazy one I ended on two weeks ago, you'll remember. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You've been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Now let's look at that a minute. Look what happens here. This is the results of the first Pentecost. They're trying to move into their destiny in Jesus Christ their own way while Moses is up receiving the law. The camp now has to be cleansed, and man is the dominion holder in the earth. Why? Because God said he would be. You got to remember, this is a time where if you're going to cross into the promised land and become the occupiers of the land, you're going to have the dominion of the land, God's destiny for them. 
they're going to have to actually physically slay some nations. This is a time where the truths of God are being lived in the natural. So look, if you have to cleanse the camp, and believe me, they had to cleanse the camp now, if they were going to continue to move into their destiny in God, it would be done by swords by the men. There has to be spilling of blood to cleanse the camp. And Jesus has not completed his work yet. The camp was going to be cleansed, and so they strapped on swords and they killed their sons and brothers and neighbors. Now look what it says next. We read it already. It says, Moses said to them, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he's blessed you this day. Isn't that crazy? But true. I mean, it says that the results of what they just did set them apart to God because God was their priority even over their sons and brothers and friends and neighbors. They were willing to cleanse their life so that they could go into their destiny in God. Do you think God has changed? Boy, that's the harsh Old Testament God, right? That God of the Old Testament. Whew. No. Let's look at some of Jesus' words in the New Testament. Look with me at uh, Mark chapter 10 and verse 29. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, in a conversation about salvation and moving into their destiny in God. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or field for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and fields, and with them persecutions. That's part of the cup of this choice. And in the age to come, so now we're talking about another age, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Do you see that God didn't change? He's as harsh as he's always been. He's as merciful as he's always been. His truth is his truth. And if we can align with God's reality, we will finally be living by reality. Is that right? Look at Matthew 10 and verse 34. Switch Gospels, Matthew 10. Verse 34, Jesus again says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now listen to this. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Does that sound familiar? For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now why would that be? Why would your enemies be the members of your own household? You see, family lines have changed here. We're talking about a new priority, a new reality that establishes who you're with and who you're not with. Back at Mount Sinai, they actually slayed 3,000 people with the sword in order to cleanse the camp. That's, <laughs> that's a priority structure now. It says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is for my sake? We're going to move on into Pentecost here, but we had to do this. What is for my sake? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The idea isn't just that you need to lose your life. You lose your life for his purposes, his will, 
He has a destiny for you. And that's what you lose it for, to win your destiny. Jesus Christ paid a big price for you to get your destiny. That's the only thing worth losing your life for. If it wasn't for that, you might as well live it up and do whatever you want. (laughs) There's only one thing worth more. God's purposes. His plan for us to fulfill His will. And we shall be the ones that will fulfill it. Why? We started there. Because God gave man dominion in the earth. He's not doing this without you. You ready for Pentecost? Okay, so where have we gone? Jesus presented himself as the lamb at Passover, and then he fulfilled unleavened bread, took our sin to hell so you don't have to have it anymore. And then he rose to life and started the first 40 days of the Feast of First Fruits, in which he, he appeared to them in wisdom and revelation. He appeared to them so they would understand the scriptures. Talked about the 40 days. And then what? We're going to slow down at one point here. Then at the end of the 40 days, the end of the 40 days of the counting of Omer, then what did Jesus do? He ascended to sit down at the right hand of the Father. And in the prophet Isaiah, he tells us that he will sit down at the right hand of the Father and his enemies will be made his footstool, right? So I have a question for you. Where is Jesus right now? Yes. Now look, I know Jesus is in our heart and Jesus is with us and I'm going to tell you that it's true. It's okay if that's the way you think because there is truth there. It is by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of Jesus. Our God is one. He's with us. But to have a good view of reality, to understand what we're talking about, Jesus is in heaven. (laughs) He is sitting with the Father. He is ruling as a king. He's in the throne room. The courts are open. So he ascends to sit down at the right hand of the Father, and then there's ten days, right? Ten days of waiting. And now we reach the culmination of that ten days. And so here we go. Here's the description of the day. Go with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. So let's stop for a minute. First of all, do you see the parallels, especially those of you that were with us two weeks ago? You see the parallels. Fire came down on the mountain. And you remember we we spent great effort talking about how They stood afar off. There's nothing afar off here. This is not fire up on the top of a mountain. The glory of God comes down and rests on them. And you see the parallels, the sound from heaven. We talked about the thundering that happened at Mount Sinai. actually translates as many tongues issuing from the mountain. And it fills the house where they were sitting. Many tongues, and one sat on each of them. They're not afar off. Okay. And in verse 4, it says, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now look, we need to stop here and we need to look at some of these things because a few weeks ago we talked about how there's nothing more attacked than the Holy Spirit and the power of God and what Jesus fulfilled on our behalf in the Feast of Pentecost. 
There's nothing more attacked in our lives. The enemy wants to give us more wounds in this area than any other area. And you can imagine why. The more we get a hold of this, the more we win, people. (laughs) The more the will of God from the throne room of God is done on the earth in supernatural power. And so there's atrocities and there's abuses and we lay it aside. We don't even want to preach a sermon on it. It's a little scary because you don't know who you're going to offend. That's what happens because of the attack of the enemy. Right? So let's look at some things. That's not okay with us. We want all that God has for us, don't we? Okay. So let's look at this. First of all, it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, You'll remember that we've established that on Resurrection Day, Jesus breathed on them and they received the Spirit. So if that's the case, then what's going on here? Why did God need to do this? We have to get a handle on the truth that there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist prophesied it. He said, I baptize you with water, but one is coming whose shoes I can't even touch. And he's going to baptize you with fire. John was not a liar. There is an anointing of the Spirit, and it is something other than the Spirit that is given at the beginning of first fruits when Jesus rises from the dead and brings us into his salvation. Okay? If that's making someone uncomfortable, I apologize. All I'm doing is reading the Bible. This is another event that has a whole different set of details around it. There is the filling of the Holy Spirit because God wants you to achieve your destiny in Jesus Christ. That's what you're for. So what is this? This is the anointing. This is We've been talking about this. I've been alluding to it for weeks. But, and you know this. This is the dominion of the throne room of God being put in your life so that you can actually accomplish the will of God. When you pray, Our Father in heaven, and you say that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is the only way that happens. This is God's plan to bring you into that destiny, to be occupiers of the promised land where the dominion power of God is done in the earth. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's the anointing for ministry. You know, I've spent an entire Christian life and I have lost count of the number of interactions and conversations where I talk with people where they don't, they don't believe in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They don't think that's part of ministry, or I don't know, I'm assuming they've read this and the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the letters and the book of Revelation, and they come away. They don't believe in it. That's the first thing we've got to get. There there is a filling of the Holy Spirit we're reading about the first time here. Of course, there were prophets that the Spirit would come upon in the Old Testament. Yes, and they would... The supernatural power of God would break into the natural and accomplish God's will with them. But here's the first spirit-filled church where the will of God is breaking into the natural through men by the person of the Holy Spirit so that God's will can actually be done in the earth. Is that good or what? That's our age. That's the time we get to live in. They didn't get to live in that time. We do. Then it goes on and says, they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, (laughs) tongues. 
there's one that, have you heard everything under the sun? You've heard every kind of belief, every kind of atrocity, everything you could ever hear. You're not saved unless you've spoken in tongues. Tongues have ceased. They're not for us today anymore. Can't be an elder if you haven't spoken in tongues. If you don't pray in the Spirit, you're not really praying. But it's really not funny. That's the attack of the enemy. I know why you laugh, but <laughs> it's really tragic. It's the destiny of God being twisted by an enemy. When it's really not supposed to be that hard. It is actually recorded here. So look, we're just going to take a minute and we're going to talk about tongues. And the first thing that we have to point out if we're going to understand this is there are three distinct types of tongues that are listed in the scriptures. And no, they didn't cease. I can prove it for you sometime with the Word of God if you need me to. But there are three distinct tongues, and I'm not even prideful enough to say there are only three. I've reached a point in my life where God can do whatever He wants, and I'm not going to argue against it. If He wants to manifest a fourth time, I'll come and tell you about it. But there are at least three recorded in the scriptures, okay? This one, and I want to tell you in advance because this has to be crystal clear. You just need to move forward in your life totally understanding. This first one that's here on the on this day of Pentecost is the spiritual gift. It's the first manifestation of a church that is manifesting spiritual gifts. In other words, the supernatural power of the throne room of God changing the natural so that God's will can be done. That's what spiritual gifts are. It's not talents or I'm really good at this or abilities. It's supernatural power breaking into the natural. So that's what's happening here. And this type is they actually speak the languages of all the Jews that are pilgrimaging into Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. You see why? Because God has a plan. He's got 3,000 people he wants to save today. And they've all come from different nations and they don't have interpreters and they don't speak the same language. So the power of the throne room of God breaks in and they speak their languages, the tongues. Okay, so when you hear people say that the baptism of the, of the Holy Spirit is only evidenced by speaking in tongues and if that doesn't happen, well, then it didn't happen I hate to tell you that that's not, and I don't hate to tell you, I actually love to tell you that <laughs> that's not what this is saying. God will manifest his gifts through the power of the Holy Spirit in the way that pleases him for the accomplishment of his will. Don't ever let anyone abuse you over that. Okay? So that's one type. Well, quickly I'm going to tell you the other two types. These other two types are not in this passage, but it's just too great of an opportunity to make sure we all have good theology. Another type is praying in the Spirit. Okay, that's actually praying in the language of heaven. This is the great gift. You might pray for it if you don't have this one. Not that it's for everyone or it's God's intention that everyone has it. But listen what this is. This is actually praying in the language that's going on in the courts of heaven so that you can change verdicts in heaven and have the power of God impact the earth. That's praying in the Spirit. It's a pretty good one. And Paul says somewhere, I'm not sure where right now, that I wish all did this as I do. So that tells us two things. It tells us not all do it. Not all of the Christian community at that time had that gift, and it wasn't necessarily God's will for all 
to manifest and use that gift. Or he wouldn't say, I wish all did. It also tells us that it wasn't just Paul that many did have this gift, or he wouldn't have said, I wish all did. He wouldn't say that if there wasn't an expectation that many would, right? It's just the Bible. And then the third one is, it's also the heavenly language, but this is different. This is God's desire to prophesy over his assembly, his church. And so he prophesies in tongues in the heavenly language over the church, and then an interpreter interprets what's said. So you'll think of Paul's instructions in the letter of Corinthians. Okay, God has a desire to prophesy. So tongues is spoken. And now Paul is correcting the church had gotten disorderly, out of order where people are doing all kinds of things in tongues and they didn't even have order. So he's really correcting them and saying, don't use the gift this way. If someone's going to speak in tongues to prophesy from the throne room of God a word of life over my people, then have an interpreter that will interpret that heavenly language so that it's, it profits the people. Okay, that's the three types. There are probably more. You might even find one that I didn't find. But just to let you know that it's not just tongues or tongues and don't ever let anyone abuse you over it. Okay? Now, we're going to go on in the narrative and we're going to look at the response of the people and it's going to tell us really important things for this morning. So go back with me, Acts chapter 2, and we'll go on into verse 5. Here's the crowd's response. So recognize that something very powerful is happening. This is not something where it's this little tiny event and there's no way that people would know anything's going on. And it says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem... Devout men from every nation under heaven. That's the pilgrims. The NIV actually says staying in Jerusalem. And in verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now I want you to notice something. Why did the crowd gather together? They heard the wind. They heard the sound. Right? So you might think of Weeks and weeks ago, we talked about Moses, who saw the burning bush, and we talked about how God actually responded to Moses, because Moses was the kind that he was walking along and saw the bush, and he says, what a crazy thing. He had spiritual eyes, and he had to stop and say, I have to go check that out. I have to see what that's about. And because he did that, he went completely into his destiny in God, because he was the person that would turn aside. He was hungry. If he saw something supernatural, spiritual, he went. And it brought Moses into his destiny. The same thing's happening here. This crowd gathers because they're the one. There are many more people than, the, than this little crowd of 3,000 or so that gather. Jerusalem's a huge city. But these are the ones that come. And they were confused. Now in verse 7, then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Do you know what you're witnessing? You're witnessing the first time that they've gone from a church of believers, saved, which happened at the beginning of first fruits, and now you're reading they have become a spirit-filled church where the will of God is being done on the earth in such manner that thousands are coming just to see what God is doing, what's going on. The power 
and the plans of the throne room of God are breaking into the earth like they never have in all of God's history. Okay, go on to verse 15, okay? Acts chapter 2, verse 15. Now, here's what's going on here. Peter is giving the first spirit-filled sermon. Now, you could argue with me and go, you know, there was Isaiah and Jeremiah when the Spirit of the Lord came upon people. But in terms of the church, Peter is giving the first spirit-filled sermon, the first sermon that had the ability to actually cut to the heart by the power of the Spirit of God. And in doing this, what's happened is the, the crowds have seen that they're so elated, so joyful in the fire of God, in the baptism of fire, in the power of God, that some start going, they must be drunk. And so he begins his sermon by saying, starting in verse 15, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now look, why does he do that? He goes to the prophet Joel next, and we're going to read that in a minute, just because he's going to answer their confusion. He's going to say, let me tell you what is actually happening today. You obviously need a clarification on what you're observing. So he goes in the prophet Joel, and in verse 17, he says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Not the priests or the pastors. On all flesh. Okay, this is God's plan. This is his destiny for you. Your mission, should you choose to accept it. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. We're just going to break this down a little bit. The most important thing you have to understand here is that you just read Peter's description of our times. After Jesus fulfills Pentecost, you just read God's will, God's destiny for us in our times. So if we're not seeing that our sons and our daughters are prophesying, should we be concerned? Should we notice that? Yes. If our young men are not seeing visions, should it bother us a little? Now, I can, what I can't figure out is if, if I'm a young man or an old man with me, I notice for the most part with, with me and God, he gives me dreams. And I think, well, I'm not an old man. I'm just a kid. <laughs> Now it ends by, he says, and they will prophesy. This is such an important point. I just can't leave it to next week. It says, they shall prophesy. Do you know what it is to prophesy? See, we think of prophecy as it's always like this future, future telling. The animal with three heads and all of that. But to prophesy is really just a different, it, it's, it's something else. You understand that We've been talking about the scripture that the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God, right? There's our definition. And to prophesy is to be a people that see in the Spirit, that are led by the Spirit. You see, every one of these things that he names for our age, visions, dreams, prophecy, these are all things where you see in the Spirit, where God gives you the ability to see true reality, not reality as the world lies it at you. Real spiritual reality. You see in the Spirit, and you can speak the words of life 
from what you see. And this is not just priests and pastors. This is, he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. You'll be a people of the spirit who see in the spirit, who speak words of life because your reality is spiritual. Do you see that? (laughs) So in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 and in verse 18, they think Luke is the writer here. He's speaking about Pentecost, and you're going to see that this is true. It says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. What mountain are we talking about here? Sinai, the first Pentecost. And then go to verse 22, and it says, but you have come to Mount Zion. And what we read next is a spiritual description. You're going to see very quickly that the writer is one who's prophesying here. He's seeing in the Spirit and giving you a spiritual description. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Just Jerusalem? No, the heavenly Jerusalem. To an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You know what the blood of sprinkling is that's spoken of here? They would take the blood of the lamb and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. And it would atone so that the glory of God would not completely smite the people. And that speaks better things than Abel because this is not just a lamb. This is the king of the world, Jesus Christ. In a description of God's plan of Pentecost from one glory to the next glory. And then further down in the same passage, after this description of Pentecost in verse 28, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. You need to know that this word grace actually translates as power. It says, let us have power, in other words, that we may serve God acceptably. In another place, Jesus speaks about receiving a kingdom. And this is when he sits down with the disciples to have the Passover meal. He's about a week away from laying his life down for us. In the same year that he fulfills this Passover. And he says, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, I have lost count of the number of times that I have seen the Lord's Supper led in a way where it's just one more opportunity to repent. And I want to emphasize something this morning. There's only one reason a king invites you to his table in his kingdom, and it's not because he wants to give you another opportunity to repent. There's only one reason you sit at the king's table. And it's because his thoughts on you are finished or you wouldn't be there. And it's to toast the king. That's the reason you sit at the king's table. 
It's the toast of the king. And so before talking about bestowing a kingdom on them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't say, Do this in remembrance of your sin. He says, Come to my table, the king's table in the kingdom, and do this in remembrance of me. Let's toast Jesus this morning. If you would, with a few people around you, raise the bread and join with a few people and say, here's the Jesus. Here's the Jesus. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. In the same way, let's toast to Jesus. Let's raise our glass and clink <laughs> and say, here's to Jesus. Here's to Jesus. Jesus invites us to his table in his kingdom to toast to him as his honored guest because he never stops desiring that we have a closer walk with him and that we come more and more into our destiny that he's planned for us in Jesus Christ.